Now, before, before I go on to the concepts of soul, I want to just raise one point, which was raised. And that is <clears throat> that when I say that the connection between the self and the physical body is the mechanism called will, and that is what connects the two, I don't only mean to say physical body. What I really mean to say is that the connection between the self and its garb or and its external manifestation where it resides in is the will. In other words, in order to lift your hand, the self wills, which means that a mechanism is triggered which fires the brain and the hand moves. The same idea is when you think. In order to think, the self wills and you think. Thinking is also a process of mind that has to be willed in order to start. Therefore, you can start thinking and stop thinking, but you need will to do it. In other words, thinking or any other thing that you can control with the will uh, is the repercussion of the interaction between, of the mechanism between the self and that event. In other words, self controls physical action, thoughts, or whatever. Even those events or phenomena which exist on the mental plane, self controls that by willing. In other words, there is a mechanism that exists between the thought and the self. Just like there's a mechanism that exists between the body or the brain and the self. That mechanism is called will. So you can will yourself to think, you can will yourself to stop thinking, and you can will yourself to think about something else. It doesn't make a difference. You still have to employ the will to initiate any kind of action that you do, whether it be in the mental plane or whether it be in the physical plane. For instance, if you want to imagine, you have to will the imagination to conjure up an image. Now, it is possible, and this is the realm of the unconscious, which I'll talk about when I talk about meditation. <laughs> You can ask, what do you mean? Many times I think about something or I see things in my mind that I'm not even conscious that I'm willing. Good question. The answer is, is that there is a part of self that you are not aware of and there is a part of consciousness that you are not aware of which is willing in itself. And, not to confuse you now, I will talk about that in a very clear manner when we talk about meditation. When we talk about meditation. Okay, now, <clears throat> we see therefore <clears throat> that man consists of the following elements. A self that is indivisible and discrete. <clears throat> a garb which consists of, one, the mind which possesses many faculties all operating in the mental plane or the mental dimension. Two, a physical body. This is what we see that man consists of. The self and the mind. We can now understand the spiritual components and their structure of man now that we know the concept of self and mind. Man has two souls, two nefoshes. One soul is called the nefesh elyoyna, and don't worry, I'll, we'll talk about what the souls are. Man has two souls, two nefoshes, a nefesh is a soul. The first soul is called Nefesh Ilyoyna, which is called the higher soul, the spiritual soul. 
And that is an entity which is spiritual in nature. It's also called Nefesh Hanivdelis, or the transcendent soul, because it is not physical. It transcends the physical. It is a spiritual entity, purely. The second soul that man has is called Nefesh Tachtoina, or the lower soul. This is physical in nature, I repeat. Physical in nature. Man has a lower soul which is physical in nature, but the soul which is physical in nature is extremely subtle. It's ethereal. In other words, it's a very subtle form of matter. In Hebrew, it's called Dak Shibagashmius, the most finest, subtle, ethereal form of matter that cannot be detected by instruments. But it is still matter, it's still Geshem. It is physical. This is the physical soul. That physical soul is also called Nefesh Bahamas, which means animal soul, which I will explain. Now, we see, therefore, man has two souls, Nefesh Elyoina, the higher soul, and Nefesh Tachtoina, the lower soul. What is this Nefesh Tachtoina, the lower soul, or the animal soul? From this Nefesh Tachtoina emanates the life force of the inert body. In other words, what gives matter its life force, its animation, or its vitality? The answer is the Nefesh Tachtoina. The Nefesh Tachtoina invests in an inert substance, life, animation, what we know as life. If you do not have a Nefesh Tachtoina, you do not live. If you have it, then all of a sudden, that thing becomes live as we recognize life. Even a simple cell has a Nefesh Tachtoina. That's what animates it, and it is physical in nature. Now, from the Nefesh Tachtoina also emanates the mind with all its accompanying faculties. The mind, the entity called the mind, with all its mental faculties, emanate from the Nefesh Tachtoina. So, Nefesh Tachtoina gives rise to life force, and it gives rise to mind with all the accompanying faculties. Now, the faculties of the mind I had mentioned, and they are Haskola, which is intelligence, Zikorn, which is memory, Dimyon, which is imagination, Hargosha, which is feeling, affect, or emotion, and Rotsoin, which is will. These are the faculties of the mind, and they all are part of the mind, and the mind itself exists or emanates from the entity called <coughs> Nefesh Tachtoina, which is a physical soul which man possesses. Now, the Nefesh Tachtoina resides or is connected to the body. The Nefesh Tachtoina is a resident, a denizen of the physical body. <clears throat> These two components, the Nefesh Tachtoina and the Guf, the body, they are the physical aspects of man's nature. So therefore we see man has a body, a physical body, and he has a nefesh tachtoina, which makes the body, the inert body, it makes it, uh, it animates it, it makes it live, that's the chius, the life force, and it creates, or it gives it the quality of mind with all the emerging faculties of mind. <clears throat> now, 
All living things possess nefesh tachtoino. Not only man. Everything that lives <clears throat> from man to the smallest virus has what's called a nefesh tachtoino. It gives them life. It gives them animation. It gives them chiyus. <clears throat> Without a nefesh tachtoino, there is no life force in any matter whatsoever. Nefesh tachtoino is also called, as I had mentioned, nefesh bahamas. Animal soul. That's what the word nefesh bahamas means. Animal soul. soul. Because all living forms possess it in order to live, move, and propagate the species of the same kind. Man also has a nefesh bahamas, as said before, because his body also lives. In other words, the nefesh bahamas, which is the nefesh tachtoina, is called nefesh bahamas or the animal soul because all <coughs> animals have it in common in order to live. That's the life force. And they possess it. Man, who is also an animal in the sense that he has a body, also has a nefesh bahamas, and that's what keeps him alive. And that's what, uh, anyway, that's what he shares in common with all life forms, all animals. Now, obviously, there are tremendous variations in complexity of the nefesh tachtoina or the nefesh bahamas. There are obviously tremendous amounts of differences in different kinds of nefesh tachtoina. Each organism has a nefesh tachtoina which is ordained for it and its species. <coughs> it has the exact nefesh tachtoina that it must have in order to achieve what's called the tikkun of the Bria. Man's nefesh tachtoina is incredibly greater than other life forms. But every living thing has a nefesh tachtoina, but it varies in complexity. In animals or insects, it is obviously much more primitive, the nefesh tachtoina. In man, it is much more complex because it gives man not only his life, but it gives him his intellect, his mind, his intellect, the power to reason, to have conceptions, judgments, and syllogisms, the power to have imagination. It gives him the power to have self-awareness, that I am a self, that I know that I am aware, that I know that I know. Animals do not have that. This is the power invested by the nefesh tachtoina in man. And on man, it is much more complex and sophisticated. In the lower life forms, it is obviously much more primitive. But it is the same thing, the nefesh tachtoina. Thus, all living forms, balichayim, including man, odom, contain a nefesh tachtoina and a body a physical soul and a physical body. That is the definition of all living things. Guf, body, and nefesh tachtoina, which is life force, and in man it's mind and the faculties of mind, which is the consciousness, the awareness, the intellect, the imagination, and so on. Now, that is the nefesh tachtoina, nefesh bahamas, the lower soul or the physical soul. There is a second soul, a spiritual one. It is spiritual in substance. And it is spiritual in nature, which is present in man and only in man, and no other living form. This spiritual soul had, or a higher, is a higher soul. It is called the nefesh elyoina. Elyoina means higher. Only man has a nefesh elyoina. 
which immediately distinguishes man from all creation. Man is different from the animals because he is composed of a body and the nefesh tachtoina, which is physical, and he is also composed of a spiritual entity, nefesh elyoina, and they both are integrated in the same being called man. The spiritual entities, for instance, angels only have a spiritual entity. They have no physical entity. Man bridges two different existential planes in that he is spiritual and physical simultaneously. And that is what the Rabbanu Shalom wants. And we will understand why later. Now, what is the Nefesh al We understand what the body is. We understand what the Nefesh Tachtoyna is, the mind. What is the Nefesh al The Nefesh al is the self. It is placed in or connected to the Nefesh Tachtoyna which itself, the nefesh tachtoin itself, is connected to the physical body. That's it. Nefesh elyoina, self, connected to nefesh tachtoin, which is mind. That's why the self resides in the mind. And nefesh tachtoin is connected to the body. And according to um, esoteric disciplines, Kabbalistic ideas, uh, the nefesh tachtoin is connected, we are in the body, to the blood. So if you lose enough blood, you die because your nefesh tachtoina popped out, left. That's why you die. Technically, that's why you die. That is why the, the, when the Torah refers to blood, it, it calls it nefesh. Kadam huha nefesh. Why does it call it the nefesh? Because that, that's why. Because the nefesh tachtoina is connected in some way which we are not aware of. Because it's a very subtle form of matter, it's connected to the blood. And when a person bleeds a sufficient amount, he dies. He dies other ways because obviously the nefesh tachtoina can leave the body through other ways which is ordained for it. But the blood is where it resides and that is the most obvious form of how, of how a person can die. You bleed to death. Now, in other words, that man consists of three components. One spiritual and two physical components. The nefesh elyoina, or the self, which is spiritual in nature, and the nefesh tachtoina, which is physical in nature, it's subtle, it's uh, the life force, uh, it, 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 it gives the life force and also the mind emerges from it. And the third component is the goof, or the body. And the body is a gross physical form, whereas the nefesh tachtoina is a fine, subtle physical form. Now. Man, therefore, if it's true that man is composed of the nefesh, or rather the guf, the body, the nefesh tachtoina, the lower soul, and uh, the nefesh elyoina, so what we see now is that man is now connected to Oilam because the physical world ha- is the world of the body and the world of the mind, the mental plane. So if the nefesh elyoina is connected to the nefesh tachtoina, which is connected to the body, then the nefesh elyoina is now connected to the oilam In fact, the self resides in the mind. So we are now connected to the oilam So if that's the case, we now exist on the level of oilam Therefore, we can masakin oilam We can correct it. We can remove the concealment of the divine essence in oilam 
and we can restore Olam Asiyah to a state of tremendous Gilui of Yehudoi. And that's exactly what we do. So, that is the way we got the essence of man, the self or the nefesh of Yoyna, to be able to masakin Olam Asiyah. Because the self is connected to the nefesh Tachtoyna, which is connected to the guf. And the self or the nefesh Yoyna resides in the mind, in the mental plane. Once it resides in the mind or the mental plane, it now can masakin, it can correct, it can fix the area of Olam Asiyah. You see? So now we understand how we can massacre in Olam Asiyah because we exist in Olam Asiyah. But, man must be connected to all other Olamas existentially in order to massacre the rest of these worlds. In other words, in order to remove the concealment of God or the concealment of the oneness of God, we must be connected not only to Olam Asiyah, to all other worlds. And as far as we know, the self is only connected to the Olam Asiyah. It resides in the mind. So therefore, the question then is that man has to be connected existentially to all other Olamas in order to massacre the history of these worlds. And also, by the way, in order to, in order to be able to enjoy the spiritual enlightenments of the Olamas you also have to be existentially existing on those worlds. In other words, not only must you exist on the other worlds in order to change those worlds, to massacre those worlds, but in order to be the recipient of enlightenment or the recipient of perceptions of other worlds, you must exist existentially there also. So the question is, of course, how is man connected to the other worlds in order to massacre it, and in also in order to experience enlightenment and perception, if we can transcend this world and journey to the other worlds, which we can through certain procedures. But the question is, how can we do it? We have to be there. The self must be there. And so far, we only see that the self exists only in Olam Asiya. Now, here goes. How do we do this? What the Rabbana Shalom did is an incredible thing that only he could do. He took self and he stretched it like a rubber band. He took the Nefesh and he extended it. The self, mind you. He took the self, extended it. Into, well, we know we're connected into Eilam Asiya through the Nefesh Taktoyna. He extended it into Eilam Yitzirah. He stretched it into Olam Bria. He stretched it into Olam uh, Atsilus, and he shoved it into Adam Kadmon. Which means <laughs> that we actually spread through five existential planes. It's incredible. That means the self extends itself five to five existential planes. If anybody thought that they had to reduce this is it. You extend through five existential planes. Now, that is how you are connected through five existential planes. In other words, in other words, what the Nefesh Elyoyna has is that it has five major parts, each part being on a different level. In other words, the Nefesh Elyoyna is the self which is extended 
to be existentially present in all five existential planes, all five olamas. Thus, nefesh elyoyinu, or the self, exists or is manifested on all five dimensions of being. Now, and it is called by a specific name. The self assumes different names depending upon which oilam it resides in and depending on which oilam you want to refer to it. In other words, depending on which oilam that self resides in or is ontologically rooted to, it has a different name. Therefore, the nefesh or self, when it is an oilam asiyah, it's called nefesh, soul. That's the nefesh elyoyna. But nefesh elyoyna, I have to say, is a collective term. Nefesh elyoyna means the, the upper or the higher soul. But it also means a specific term, nefesh, which is what the term used to designate the self or the soul when it is in the oil When the self or soul is in the oil then we call it ruach or spirit. Then we're called ruach. When we are in oil bria, we are called neshama or breath. And sometimes neshama stands collectively again for the entire, uh, all the components of man's self. Just like nefesh elyoyna, some, uh, nefesh also means that. But in any case, the specific term of nefesh means the soul or the self as it resides in the oilam bria. When you reside in oilam atzilus, you are called chaya or living. And when you reside in odom kadman, you are called yechida or unique. Because you can see the term yechida means yichud. Because, well, that's intimations, that's intimations of the connection that you have with God at that point in time. Now, what we see therefore is that there are five dimensions of self in every Jew. Because all five dimensions of self exist on five existential planes. This is really the concept or the idea of an extended self, a self that is stretched, stretched out through all existential planes of being. In other words, the self has been in some way, which is unknown to us, been stretched out far beyond uh, this world. So therefore, the self actually manifests its own presence in every single dimension of reality. Therefore, what we see so far is that all five parts of self, all five parts of the nefesh elyoyna are really one entity, the nefesh elyoyna or the self. It's not five parts or five different entities, and that for that matter. But it's really one specific entity that is extended through every dimension of being, every existential plane. Now, a good example of this is a marshal. A good metaphor is the example of a, a chain. A chain that has five links, one end is hooked up to one area and the other end is hooked up to another area, another spot. That's a very good metaphor to understand the concept of nefesh elyoyna, the concept of how the being of man is stretched out. Let's take a look at a chain, a chain and its links. Now the chain or the, and the links of the chain is a metaphor for the nefesh elyoyna or the self. <coughs> 
the five links of a chain are equal to the five parts of the nefesh Each part of the nefesh of course, has a separate manifestation in different worlds. All five links of the chain are connected or linked to one another, and they really uh, to one another. The same idea in nefesh Every part of nefesh even though it manifests itself separately in every dimension of reality, the truth is that all five parts of nefesh are really linked together. They are connected to one another. Also, just like the all five parts or five links of a chain form one entity, the same idea that all parts of nefesh which are connected to one another, they really also form one entity. That is the idea of nefesh or extended self. Now, we also see that just like a chain, one end of a chain is connected to one area, and the other end of a chain is connected to another area, the same idea of nefesh One area which is the lowest nefesh, in other words, the nefesh of nefesh is connected to ilma the world of action, and the other area, the other area of nefesh the other part, the uppermost part, which is called Yechido, is connected to Adam Kadmon. So we see that the metaphor of a chain with five links is very appropriate for the concept of Nefesh Yoyna. That they basically, just like a chain has links, the Nefesh has parts also. Just like a chain <coughs> has uh, all parts connected to one another, the Nefesh also has all parts connected to one another. Just like a chain really forms one entity, the nefesh elyoyna in all its parts also forms one entity. And just like the chain is connected from one area to another area, the same idea with nefesh elyoyna that is connected to different areas. So therefore we see that nefesh elyoyna extends itself through all dimensions of reality. And at the bottommost level, the nefesh elyoyna is connected to the nefesh tachtoyna, and the nefesh tachtoyna is connected to the body in ilmasiya. This gives us a, a, a basic, adequate understanding of the concept of soul and nefesh elyoyna. Now, it is important to note that even though self is connected to every existential plane, therefore, since it is connected to every existential plane, every dimension of being, it can perceive any entity in that dimensional plane. <coughs> Not only can it perceive the entities <coughs> on that plane, but also it can perceive the yichud manifestation, the, or rather the amount of gil of that plane. In other words, <coughs> that it can perceive the amount of divine revelation or the amount of revelation of the divine essence in every plane because it is a resonant of that plane. So therefore it can perceive entities of that plane as well as the state, the state of Gilui, of Yichud manifestation that exists in that plane. What I wanted to point out, however, is that even though it exists in every plane, it can therefore perceive the entities and also the amount of revelation of Yehudoi, the awareness or consciousness of these worlds are really denied it until a future appropriate time for such a perception.
In other words, even though you really can perceive now in uh, these, these, the entities of these worlds, the Yichud manifestations of these worlds, and so on, that awareness of those world, worlds are denied you at present. You're not aware that yourself is extended through dimensions of being. You're not aware of what you really can perceive. It is only in potential, but the actual awareness is denied a person. But at a future appropriate time, the self is made aware to the actual planes that it exists in. This is what happens later on. And of course, the future appropriate time is of course ilm habbo, the future world. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> therefore we see that it is the self-awareness <clears throat> of these existential planes is denied it until a future appropriate time. In addition, <clears throat> The self can achieve an awareness of these different existential planes that it actually resides in through another, or rather, in, in, through another way. There is a meditative avoda which leads to Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah. This also will give access of the self, the Nefesh Elyona, to perceive what it actually can perceive. In other words, via the meditative avoda, via the actual task whereby a person meditates and performs certain uh, ideas, certain processes, he actually can perceive the different areas of the existential planes that he exists in. That's a second way that a person can actually perceive the areas that he exists in. The first, or rather the first time well, the first way that a person will be granted access to those areas, in other words, that he will actually have an awareness of those areas, is at a future appropriate time. Another way is that you can perceive it here, but you must employ specific procedures that will enable you to perceive those worlds. There is a third way an individual, a self, can perceive the oilomus ilionis, the upper worlds or the upper existential planes. And that is that through a special divine intervention enabling man to become aware of these oilomas that he really exists in. In other words, God has to interfere with reality as we know it, with the physical world and enable man to perceive the world that he is connected to. That is the third way. But that takes a divine intervention which of course does not occur on a regular basis. That occurs very infrequently. In other words, if the future appropriate time is not here, you will not perceive, you will not be aware of what you are connected to. If you are not involved in meditative avoida, prophecy and divine inspiration, you also will not perceive what you are connected to. If the Rabbanishlam does not give you the ability or actually intervene in the physical laws of nature and enable you to perceive where you are connected to, you also will not perceive those worlds. Therefore, there are actually three ways where a person can transcend his physical body, at least in terms of awareness. You do not leave the body, but you are aware of upper worlds, different existential planes, in one of three ways. Now, just to give an example, when was there a divine intervention? 
Was there a time when God actually allowed Jews to perceive worlds or existential planes, even though they were not worthy? In other words, even though the Jewish people did not, it was not the appropriate time, it wasn't Doilem Habo, they certainly didn't engage in any meditative avoidah, the process or the procedure that leads, leads to prophecy or to a divine inspiration. When was there a time that God intervened and allowed Jews to perceive other worlds even though they were not worthy of it? The answer to that is Matan Torah, at the, given, the giving of the Torah itself. Matan Torah, or the actual giving of Torah, was a special circumstance for historical transmission of the Yichud of the Rabbanu Shalom even though they were not worthy by themselves. What does that mean? What the Rebbe wanted to do at Matan Torah is he wanted to give Jews the Torah. But, now, Jews therefore would accept the Torah and transmit this Torah down through the generations. In order for Jews to successfully transmit that, they would have to become aware, not only of the Torah, but they would have to become aware of who the Rebbe is. And they would also transmit that down through the generations. So what the Rabbanu Shalom did is he revealed himself in a manner which was far beyond what he normally reveals himself. In order that the Jewish people can say to their descendants that we saw God, we had a prophetic experience, and that is really what happened at Matan Torah, at the giving of the law at, at Mount Sinai that they can say to their descendants that we perceive this, and their descendants can say to their descendants that my father told me, that his father told him, that his father told him that he was present when God appeared, revealed himself to the Jewish people. That is true transmission. And that really is the basis for belief among the Jewish people. We Jews believe in God for two reasons, basically. We believe in God because of a historical event that occurred 3,300 years ago. And we also believe in God because we can reason out that there must be a God in this world. Now, focusing on the first idea, we believe in God because of a historical transmission, which is very accurate. A historical transmission has to contain two fundamental strengths. The first strength that a historical transmission has to contain is the transmission itself. How valid is the transmission? The process of one giving over the ideas to another. The second idea is the validity of the, of the event itself that is being transmitted. Who or what was revealed, what is being said that was about, about the event itself? <clears throat> Jews have a very strong historical validity, both in the event that occurred, the event that is being transmitted, and also in the transmission process itself. What Judaism says is that over two million people witnessed a revelation of God himself. The first two commandments of the Ten Commandments was given by God himself, not through Moshe Rabbeinu, the first commandment that I am the Lord your God who has taken you out of Egypt and the second commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Those two commandments were given by God himself, not through Moshe. And when God himself gave those two commandments, 
It was a prophetic experience which was beyond imagination. God actually revealed himself to the Jewish people in a way which is not comprehensible. They felt God, they knew who God was, and they knew who they were vis-a-vis -vis God. In other words, they had what's called Hasagasi Chudai. They actually perceived the unity of God, the oneness of God at House Sinai. That was the event that really happened. In other words, at Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, the Jews perceived, first of all, they received the Torah itself. And the second thing is they received a prophetic experience of who God is. You see, that is the event. And that event was witnessed by over two million people. That is the event that Judaism says occurred 3,300 years ago. Now the rest of the Torah was given by Moshe Rabbeinu because the Jews could not tolerate that prophetic experience. In fact, the Medrash says that the Jews died. Every Jew died after the first two commandments were given. So the Medrash says that God then, of course, had to resurrect the Jewish nation. Why did they die? Because the revelation was so intense the desire of the soul to reunite with God after it perceived who it is in relationship to God was so great that they, the soul burst the bond of the physical and they all flew back, so to speak, to God. Because they were not used to that kind of prophetic experience because they were not worthy of it. Moshe Rabbeinu, who is used to, to that kind of experience, didn't die. He gets it all the time. But that's because he worked on himself to separate the physical from the spiritual. The Jewish people who did not work on themselves died as a result of the prophetic experience. But they had to get that prophetic experience in order to inculcate the event that they would now transmit down through the generations. So therefore, remember, what Judaism says is that over two million people heard God himself, witnessed the being of God. And that is what is transmitted from Jew to Jew, down to 3,300 years. That is the event that Judaism says occurred, and that is the transmission. In other words, I heard from my father, if not from my father, from my teacher, who heard from his teacher, who heard from his teacher and father all the way back, what did they say? What happened? That God revealed himself on Mount Sinai to over two million people. He revealed who he was in relationship to them. And the truth is that Moshe Rabbeinu says that, you have been shown that you may know. Where have you been shown? On Mount Sinai. How Sinai. What have you been shown? God is the master. There is nobody but God. Moshe Rabbeinu, and that's the Pasuk I quoted before, but that Pasuk is being stated by Moshe Rabbeinu to the Jews at, uh, around the giving of the Torah or right after the giving of the Torah. And he's saying, what have you been shown? Not only were you given a Torah, but you were shown who God is. Now, it is that event that Jews transmit. So therefore, Jews have the greatest or the strongest event than all other religions. Because if you notice, other religions transmit events which are nothing compared to the Jewish event. Christianity says that uh, Yeshu or Jesus arose from the dead and that's when Christianity started. Who witnessed that resurrection? Basically several people. Did they witness the resurrection? No. What they saw is an empty cave. But 
what could have happened to the body? Anything could have happened to the body. So who are the people who witnessed the, the event that they say started the entire Christianity? Very few people. Two, three, four people. And the other people who say they witnessed it say that they had an experience of they imagined or they uh, saw Jesus appear to them. Uh, for instance, Paul or whatever. But that's his mind. That's Paul relaying an event. Judaism says over two million people witness God. And they say, of course, that only a couple or handful say that there was an empty cave. Look at the difference in the event that is being transmitted in Christianity. Take a look at Islam. What does Islam say? Who witnessed God? Only Muhammad. Muhammad said that God spoke to me. Nobody else witnessed such a thing. And based on that, there's an entire religion of Islam, which you think of it is absurd. So Muhammad, how did he get people, how did he convince people of the just, justice or the righteousness of his cause, that he truly witnessed God and he was a prophet? By the sword. If you believe, good. If not, then you die. That's basically how he converted the Arab world. But look at the events that each nation say, or rather each religion say that they are based on. Look at the difference. The second area is the area of transmission. That the transmission of that event was very carefully guarded. That the given itself of the Torah and all the generations, Jews are very careful in transmitting. People actually count the letters of the Bible to know. If you take a look at the text, there's an exact, uh, a very um, careful transmission of how many letters there are and so on. And for those people who have learned Talmud, many times when they quote passages, they may quote three or four people that so-and-so said in the name of so-and-so. And if you want to say, then so-and-so said in the name of so-and-so. And maybe it's somebody else that said in the name of somebody else. They will record every person who do they think said that statement in order to make sure that the transmission is accurate. Judaism has an incredibly accurate transmission. The process and the event itself. That's the difference between Judaism and all other religions. But in any case, Matan Torah, this God had to reveal himself to the Jews so that they could now pass this and transmit this to their descendants. Because God cannot expect anybody to believe anybody based on his personal experience. There's no obligation. That is why God had to reveal himself to the Jewish people at the given of Torah in order that this event should be transmitted. And based on that, we believe in God. That is the basis of Imuno or belief that we have. The historical transmission of Maimad Har Sinai, of what occurred 3,300 years ago at, the, uh, at uh, Mount, Mount Sinai. So therefore, what do we see? We see also, again, so the, we see therefore in summary that there are three ways a person can experience the existential planes that he actually exists in. The first is, of course, will only be a future time in Ulam Habo. The second way is it can be it's possible to experience that in Ulam Hazet, this world, only assuming, of course, that he engages in the correct procedures. And those procedures are really what prophecy and divine inspiration is is all about, which I will get into later. If he engages in the correct process or procedures, then he will actually be aware of the existential planes that he exists in. 
and he will therefore be able to see the divine manifestations on those planes and the entities of those planes. The third way, of course, is a way which, which is extrinsic to man, is not controlled by man. And that is if God decides that there has to be a divine revelation in order for some uh, fundamental idea in Judaism to continue, then he will reveal himself to people or whatever at that point in time in order to ensure that this happens. And the classic event, as I had mentioned, was Matan Torah, that not only did God give the Torah to Jews, but he also revealed himself to Jews, who he is, and that was the first two commandments, and the rest was given by Moshe. In fact, the numerical value of Torah, if you add up the letters, the numerical value adds up to toughest 400 ratios. 200 is 600, Hei and is 11, 611. Torah adds up to 611 commandments, because two commandments was not given by Moshe, it was given by God himself. So Torah only adds up to 611, does not add up to 613, because two of the commandments were given by God himself, and not by Moshe Rabbeinu. Now, the idea of self, not be, being conscious of a spiritual reality that it truly can perceive because it resides there, means that there is a phenomena that exists whereby reality can be concealed from the self on one level, yet as we shall see, this reality still profoundly influences the self even though it is concealed from the self. In other words, there is, there is a phenomenon obviously that exists that can conceal from the self uh, existential planes that the self exists in. In other words, the phenomena of the denial of awareness or perception to the self or of aspects of reality that it truly can know, and the reason why it can know it obviously is because it exists in those existential planes. <coughs> in other words, that it can know what goes on in the spiritual planes this phenomena gives rise to the same phenomena of denial of awareness or consciousness or perception to the self of aspects of reality that it truly can know on the physical plane. I'll explain. <laughs> this phenomena is the psychic phenomena called repression, which places ideas or feelings or thoughts beyond conscious awareness of the ego or self even though the self can know these ideas. In other words, the self does not know all the areas that it exists in. That means there is a mechanism, there is a phenomenon which is concealing from the self this area of knowledge. That mechanism, which exists on the spiritual plane, also exists in the physical plane. It's the same mechanism. In other words, on the physical plane means here, it is possible for me not to know all areas of reality that I can know of. This phenomenon or mechanism is called repression. In other words, the origin of repression as a concealing device or a defense mechanism from the self and the subsequent idea of the unconscious where this information now lies is in reality the same phenomena of repression of a spiritual reality to the unconscious area where this, where this information also now lies. What does that mean? That means that 
The idea of repression has its origin in a spiritual phenomena. Repression simply means that the self is able to conceal aspects of reality that it does not want to look at. That is what repression is. It is able to push information out of its, out of its own awareness, which it normally would be privy to. This is repression. We see that the idea of repression exists spiritually because the self is not aware of the spiritual world that it exists in. It's not aware of entities or the yichud manifestation of those worlds. The idea of a concealing device or the fact that the self has a device whereby the reality of other worlds is concealed from it, we see that this device also exists in the physical plane. The idea of repression is an emotional phenomenon. If a person does not want to know uh, certain information, ideas or thoughts or feelings which it finds threatening, it is able to push it out of its mind, push it out of awareness, and as a result of that, it won't be aware of those ideas. In other words, the self has the ability to hide, conceal, various aspects of reality that it wants to, does not want to know. It has what's called a selection process. The device itself that the self, in other words, the self has to have the ability to do this. It has to have a device. The device that it has is the repressive mechanism. That is the same device that is used by the spiritual world, that the self is not aware of the spiritual worlds that it actually resides in. This device or repression it also use on the emotional plane here, that if it doesn't want to know an idea or a thought, it finds too threatening or too intolerable, it just throws it out of its mind. That's what repression is. It is a mental phenomena, it is a concealing device, a defense mechanism, where the self is able to hide aspects of reality that it doesn't want to look at. All I'm saying, therefore, is that we now see that there is the existence of this mechanism, repression, because the self is not aware of many worlds that exist in. So obviously, there exists a mechanism which can hide from the self information or knowledge which it normally would be privy to. This same mechanism exists here also, on this world in the emotional plane. The origin of repression, which is, the which is a device which the self uses to conceal information, has its origin in spiritual realities. So therefore, since the self can hide aspects of reality which it exists in, namely spiritual planes, since it can be hidden from the self through repression, therefore the self has this repression available to it, if it wants to use it to hide information, it can also do that. In other words, the origin of repression which the self uses exists in the spiritual world. And therefore, it is available to the self on the emotional level here also. The only thing is that there's a difference. In the former case, in other words, when we have the fact that the self is not aware of the worlds that exist in, the repression is from the Rabbani Shalom. God forces the self not to be aware of the worlds that exist in. In other words, the repression is from God that makes, a, and He makes a person unaware of the spiritual worlds that this person really is connected to. 
Therefore, of course, the person becomes totally unaware of it. It becomes unconscious to that person. Whereas in the latter case, in the case where the self denies access to information that it would normally, which it does not want to see, the repression is activated automatically by the self, by the person, not by the Rabbana Shalom. And of course it activates that in order to avoid seeing material which is threatening and intolerable to itself. Now, this material of course which becomes repressed becomes unconscious to self. That self loses the awareness of that material. <clears throat> also what's important to note is that just as in the former case, which is spiritual repression, the unconscious or repressed material which God makes it or conceals from the self, it continues, just like over there, it continues to exert a strong influence on the self just because the self or the individual is not aware of the fact that he resides in spiritual worlds doesn't mean that the spiritual worlds don't have an influence on him or that he ha does not have an influence on the spiritual worlds. So just like over there, the unconscious or repressed spiritual material exerts a strong influence on the self, so also by emotional repression, which of course is unconscious, this unconscious or repressed material continues to exert great influence over the self. Now what I think I should just define is three ideas. What the idea of conscious, subconscious, and unconscious are. And that'll perhaps give you just a better understanding. Anything which you are aware of, which the self is aware of, is conscious. You are aware of it. If you are not aware of something because you are thinking about one thing and therefore you cannot possibly think about everything, then that material is called, is in the subconscious. Why? Because you are not thinking of it, therefore it is not presently aware to you. So we say that that material is uh, not conscious or it is in the subconscious. There is also material which is unconscious and that is material which you force out of the mind. In other words, the reason why you don't know this material is not because you're, not, you're thinking about something else and the mind can only think about one thing at one time, therefore it doesn't know this material. But the reason why things go into the unconscious is because you force it there. In other words, you have the ability to conceal reality from yourself. That's a device that is inborn in the mind. That's one of the uh, mental activities or faculties of the mind, the ability to repress. When the individual uses repression, then the material becomes unconscious. In other words, conscious, 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 subconscious and unconscious are not three places, but they are really three levels of awareness to the self. It's not a place, it's a state. Repression makes unconscious makes the unconscious state. In other words, there are three levels of awareness. One is conscious, subconscious, and unconscious. If you are aware of something presently, then we say that that material is conscious. If you are not aware of the material, we say that material is in the subconscious, or it is in the level of awareness of subconscious. Because you are thinking of something else, you cannot have more than one thing at your mind. But you can recall this information if you want. You merely divert attention to the other area. The third area or third level of awareness is called unconscious, but material is unconscious, 
because the mind pushes it out. It is not accessible to the mind except through certain various ways. But normally, unconscious material is not available to the conscious mind because you are actively pushing it out. Unconscious material is unconscious not because there's a place called the unconscious, but because it is not conscious. Therefore, it is unconscious. In other words, material which is not conscious is unconscious if it cannot be called back to the mind because the mind is pushing it out. Material is called is in the subconscious if it is not conscious, but it is readily available as soon as the mind will attend to that area. Therefore, we see that the repressive mechanism has its origins in spirituality. That the Rabbanu Shalom conceals from the self the fact that the self exists in many planes and therefore should be aware of all the different areas it exists in. The device or the phenomenon is called repression. That mechanism of repression the self also uses when it doesn't want to know information and it is thrown out of the conscious mind and it becomes unconscious because it is using the repressive mechanism. When does the self use that? When does a person use that? It uses that when the material is too threatening, too intolerable to look at. And those, these ideas, these, this information can be ideas, it can be feelings, wishes, thoughts, desires, anything that the self finds objectionable or threatening. It will repress and throw out. That idea, by the way, is the basis of all um, uh, psychopathology or all abnormal behavior and actually it explains a great deal of behavior even in the normal sense. Now, we see therefore that man, the nefesh yoyna or the self, is connected to all creation. Every oilam, all ilamas, he is attached to every existential plane, every ontological dimension. That's what a man is connected to. That's what men are connected to, and at this time, man means, of course, Jews. Therefore, since he's connected to all this, he can massacre every area of reality, both physical and spiritual, because he's connected to all the physical and spiritual worlds. Now, just like a person can massacre, in other words, he can rectify or restore creation to its original state in all worlds, we know what that is, to restore the perception of the oneness of God, to what it used to be before God concealed it. He can also mechalkal, he can destroy or annihilate every area of reality because he is connected to every area of reality. In other words, if you have the power of tikkun, then you also have the power of kilkal in the same exact areas. Just like he can create a state of gili chudoi throughout all the worlds, he can also increase the state of Hesti Yechudoi also throughout all the worlds. If he creates a state of Gili Yechudoi or revelation of God's oneness throughout all worlds, this is Tikkun. If, he, however, he creates a state of Hesti Yechudoi, of concealment of the oneness of God, concealment that God is a source of all being, then this, of course, is called Kilkal. Now we see, therefore, why man can masakin or makakal every area of creation. In other words, man affects the transparency of the divine essence as the source of all being in all the Elomas through his acts, Edisi Chudoi. 
because he exists simultaneously in all the worlds. In other words, Nefesh is manifest in all the worlds. Now, man also receives spiritual influences, which are called Hashpos, which can be spiritual enlightenment or perceptions from these worlds through his Nefesh because he is connected existentially to these worlds. This Hashpo, or whatever is being transmitted to man and down, whether it be a spiritual enlightenment, if he so deserves it, or if he engages in the process to initiate it, this spiritual enlightenment, or this perception of entities in those worlds, they are perceived by the Nefesh Elyon in that world, they travel down to the Nefesh Tachtoyna, and then finally to the body itself. In other words, if there is an influence being generated from the world, it will go first to the Nefesh Elyoyna, to the Self, down to the Nefesh Tachtoyna, and then down into the Guf. In other words, these Hashpoas connect all to the, they connect to the Self, but are beyond the awareness of Self. In other words, a, a person is actually able to be influenced from the different areas that he's connected to, yet the Self is not aware of what's happening to himself because of the repressive or the spiritual oppression that the Rabbanishlam has placed the person under. In other words, from the self, it influences the nefesh tachtoyna, and then the body. Now, we see therefore that each nefesh elyoyna, even though it is connected to all the elomas, to all the words existentially, you should know that it is connected to only parts of each world, that it is assigned to masakin, and not to the other areas of those worlds. In other words, that it's true that the self is connected to every world, but in that world it is not connected to every area. It is only connected to the areas that it has to massacre or fix or correct or restore. It is not connected to every area. And as I had mentioned previously, that is the uniqueness of each Jew, that every person is connected to a certain area that nobody else is connected to. So if you don't massacre that part, it remains undone. And therefore, you will have to come back to finish the job. So either you do it now, or you come back and finish the job in another life. However, I will tell you that nobody's coming back after these years. Because we are standing right before Ikvis the Meshicha. There is no more Gilgulim reincarnations. You either do it now, or it gets done via ways which are which you will not merit the uh, no. merit the results as a result of it. In other words, you only have a certain amount of time to massacre that. You cannot do that infinitely. Uh, in other words, if you do it now, then it gets it has a tikkun those elomas, and you get the reward because that's the task. If you do not do it, then in former times, you could be reincarnated. And that's what's been going on for the last 6,000 years. We're all not here for the first time. However, if you dilly-dally, if you delay and you don't do it, there will be no more Gilgulam and you'll be stuck <coughs> with the fact that you have been given a task, never fulfilled, and therefore never re merit any kind of reward. Now, therefore... The nefesh can influence the nefesh tachtoyna and then the body 
only according to the area that the nefesh elyon is connected to in the elomus, because it receives influence from only those specific areas and from no other areas in the world. Thus, in summary, we see that man is composed of a guf, a body, which is connected to the nefesh tachtoina, the lower soul or animal soul, which is connected to the nefesh elyoina, the spiritual soul, the self. This is the entity or being called man, and at present man is Jew. That is, by the way, when Chazal say, Atem Kruim Adam, you are called man, and nobody else is called man, now you know why. Because Jews are the only ones at the present time that are connected to all the worlds for a tikkun. They're the only ones. Goyim are no more connected to those worlds, but they can still enjoy the perception of those worlds via the Jew. The only way a Goy can massac in those worlds is if he becomes Jewish himself. Which is an interesting idea. Well, in any case, man is then connected to all the existential planes of reality in order to bring a tikkun to these planes. Number one, a tikkun to himself. In other words, that he, by bringing a tikkun to these planes, a restoration of the original state of revelation of God to these planes, if he does that, then he, there will be a greater giliuchudoi, revelation of the presence of God in those planes. He will therefore have greater hasogisichudoi, he will perceive God much clearer, much greater, and therefore he will be sholem, shlemus. He will have achieved perfection or a perfect state of being because he now perceives a perfect being. So therefore man is connected to all the existential planes of reality in order to bring a tikkun to these planes, and then a tikkun to himself, and ultimately a tikkun of Namadik Sufa, for which he was brought into Oilem in the first place. This is basically a summary of the concepts of self, mind, and the idea of soul. How does a person know which areas of the world, physical world, he has to masakin and all the Oilemus? How does he know? And the answer to that is that he does not have to know. God forces a man in the direction of the area of tikkun that he has to achieve. There's no way to get out of it. Some people are pushed into certain areas. Did you ever notice that, you know, uh, in high school there's a journal and it says the one most likely to succeed, the one most likely to be a social success, and so on. And 20 years later, when you take a look at that high school journal, everybody wound up in the wrong slot. The answer to the, the, answer, the reason for that is, is that if they had consulted God first and asked what the area of Tikkun was, then they would have correctly placed in the yearbook exactly who's going where. That's really the answer. Some person who would never have succeeded is all of a sudden a multimillionaire. And the answer is because he has to become a multimillionaire, because in that area lies his Tikkun. Some people went into areas that they never dreamed they would go into because all of a sudden opportunities came their way and they decided to take advantage of it. Why? Why did the opportunity come their way? Because that is the area of tikkun that they must go into. Everything that happens to a person which is external to the person, you know, is beyond the bechira or, or the free will of a person, happens because that is the area of tikkun. That is the area 
that a person is forced into or the arena that he has to misaken. That is the answer. Uh, so therefore, a person does not have to know where he's going. He is automatically directed into that arena and uh, hopefully he will accomplish the tikkun itself. I just wanted to add to that that if you think a person has free will to escape his arena or the area of tikkun, it's not true. For instance, let's assume a person has an opportunity to go into a certain field and the revolution wants him to go into that field because in that area lies his tikkun or the area of tikkun that he has to do. The free will of the person is taken away. Not that the person has a choice and he may not decide not to do it. The person winds up deciding that he wants that area, but he doesn't know that he doesn't have free will. He thinks that he really wants the area because he really likes the area. But the intent, the desire, the wish for that area is placed in the person so that he should choose that area where he has to massacre him. There is no free will, except a person does not know when he has free will and when he does not have free will. That is the answer to that. A person does not have free will when God wants him to go into the arena that he has to massacre. In other words, he was given the ability, the interest, and the opportunity of the area that he has to massacre because there is no free will in that area. That is the area you were born for, that is the area you must go into. In other words, what we see is that the device itself, which is the mitzvah, which is the testimony of the oneness of God, is always present. That's the only way to massacre the Bria. You must declare or testify to the oneness of God. Which area you will declare or testify to the oneness of God is up to God himself. Because different areas need different edus, and therefore he will direct you into the area that he wants you to masakin, but you can only do it by doing the mitzvahs and testifying to the oneness of God via the mitzvahs in the area that he set up for you. We are now up to the area of meditation. Now, the area of meditation is very confusing. What I have tried to do is to structure the many different ideas and concepts of meditation in such a way where it will be very clear what meditation is, what its divisions are, what its objectives are, what its, what its techniques are, and so on. So therefore, once we have a framework of meditation, we then can go into Jewish meditation, and not only that, but we can understand the Eastern meditative experiences, yoga, from this standpoint. Now, what does meditation mean, the word? Meditation has a general meaning and it has a special or technical meaning. The general meaning of meditation is this, is the following. A person, when a person or the self, when it consciously engages in thinking, in other words, when it engages in directed, focused or controlled thinking, that is what meditation is. In other words, when you think about a specific object, any topic or subject, any matter for that matter, anything, when you think about that object that you are thinking about, an object I don't mean a thing, I mean any, the object of thought. When you think of a specific object exclusively for a specific period of time or duration, 
That is the general meaning of meditation. This is similar, by the way, to the Jewish concept of kavon or intention. When a person has intention, it means that he has focused thinking. He has controlled or direct thinking on a certain matter. This is what kavona is, or intention. Now, technically, the word meditation really has a completely different understanding and meaning. And that is what I want to get into. I presented what the general meaning is, the way the layperson uses the word. <coughs> that basically it means thinking in a focused manner, directed or controlled thinking exclusively on a certain matter, object, or anything for a specific period of time. This is what meditation is to the general person. But technically, it's different. It has a different meaning. Now, before I get into meditation, I just want to state one idea. What is consciousness? Consciousness is the faculty. It's a mental faculty, or it is the ability of the self to become aware or alert to reality. That's what consciousness is. Consciousness is the ability of self to perceive reality, where the self can become aware or alert to reality. That's what consciousness is. And that is a mental faculty. What is a state of consciousness? A state of consciousness is a specific amount or a definite degree of awareness or alertness of reality. There are higher states of consciousness, which means that you, are, you have, or the self has, a greater degree of awareness of reality. And there are lower states of consciousness, where the self has lower degrees of awareness of reality. But the state of consciousness is the degree or the, of, the uh, amount of awareness of alertness of reality. That's what state of consciousness means. Those are two fundamental terms which have to have definition in order to proceed to the next area of meditation. Now, we now begin the ideas of meditation. There are four terms which denote four levels of awareness or consciousness. In other words, there are four terms which denote four mental states or four kinds of mental activities. <clears throat> what are they? They are the following, and I will explain each one fully. The first state is called reflection. The second is called, the first state of awareness is called reflection. The second state of awareness is called concentration. The third state of awareness is called contemplation. And the fourth state of awareness is called meditation. Now, you will find that other people use different terms for these four states. It doesn't really make a difference. These are the terms that I am using for these states. What is important to remember is the state itself. There is no distinction between what I offer and what supposedly other people should offer if they're presenting meditation clearly. There are four states of awareness, four levels of awareness. Whatever word you want to use to describe them, there are still four, and I'm using these four. Reflection, concentration, contemplating, and meditation. <clears throat> the degree of awareness or consciousness of the self, or 
the amount of awareness that a, an individual has is contingent, is dependent on two determining factors. And the variation of these two factors is what creates the different levels of awareness. What are these two factors? One is the application of awareness itself. How aware are you of reality? That's the first factor. The second factor is the interference to awareness from, from external mental activities. How many kinds of interferences are there, intrusions are there, that prevent you from being aware of reality? That's the second factor. Those two factors are what determines the degree of awareness or consciousness that an individual or a self has. Now, let's take a look at the first kind of, or first level of awareness or consciousness, which I call reflection. What is reflection? <clears throat> <clears throat> reflection is really thinking. In other words, when you think about something, that is reflection. That is a low-level awareness. When you're thinking about something, whatever it be, that is a low level of awareness. At the same time that you are thinking about something, there are many extraneous stimuli entering the mind. In other words, there are sensory sensations. You are seeing things, hearing things, smelling things, touching things. All these sensory stimuli are entering the mind at the same time you're thinking about something. There are bodily sensations, aches and pains that you feel from your body. This is also entering your mind and the self is also perceiving these things. Then there are thoughts, a stream or a flow of thoughts that are always entering the mind. There are images that are always going in and out of the mind. And there are feelings which you are constantly in touch with. In other words, the sensations and mental activities which are separate from what you are thinking about are always there. So, what thinking or what reflection really is, it is really thinking about something, but with the constant stream or flow of extraneous stimuli or extraneous sensations, both sensory and bodily, and extraneous mental activities. So you've got all this stuff going on at the same time. You've got the thought itself, whether you're thinking about a, an object, a topic, a feeling, an idea, an image, I don't care what you're doing. But while you're thinking about something, while you're aware of something, you've got all this input, this extraneous input going on. All the other sensations of sight, smell, sound, and so on, auditory, You've got all the feelings that the body is sending up to you. The gas pains, the arm hurts, or whatever. You've got all the thoughts, all the images, and all the feelings. All of this is coming in at the same time that you are trying to think about something. That is what reflection is. It is thinking in its most simple and general, general uh, understanding. But while you think, while you are being aware of something, there is a lot of extraneous material coming in the mind, interfering, 
intruding on what you are thinking about. And that, of course, uh, weakens what you can think about because there's so much other stimuli all competing for the attention of the awareness of self. So you never really think about one thing for a very long amount of time because all of a sudden your mind becomes diverted, you begin thinking about something else, and all of a sudden you feel something, oh yeah, what did I do today, I have to go to the bank today, I got to do this, and so on and so forth, even while you're thinking about something. That is the first level of awareness. It's a level which is a, a weak, it's a weak intellectual state where you think about things, but there's a tremendous amount of uh, mental activity and sensations all vying for the same awareness of the self. That's the first level of awareness. The second level of awareness is what's called concentration. It is where you are concentrating. This is an intense intellectual state. What does that mean? What is concentration? It is when you have controlled, directed, or focused thinking on a certain matter. Whether you be thinking about an object, whether you are aware of anything, topic, subject, anything. In other words, when the awareness of an individual is focused, when his thinking is directed and controlled about anything, any object, when it is controlled or focused exclusively for a specific duration or time period, this is concentration. So we now see that the awareness is more focused, it's more intense than what we saw before. In the process of reflection, in the level of awareness of reflection, there was a great deal of stimuli bombarding, extraneous stimuli bombarding the, the thing which you were thinking about. Here, there, well, here, and, and also in that level of reflection, you thought about something, but not in a very focused way. In concentration, you are focusing the awareness much greater on what you want to think about, no matter what it is. The awareness is much more focused. It's focused awareness, controlled awareness. Now, even in concentration, there is also all the other stimuli bombarding. Same thing. You've got all the sensory and bodily sensations impeding themselves on the mind. You've got all the mental activities, all the thoughts, the images and feelings also in, in, uh, impeding themselves or intruding on the mind itself. Therefore, we see that concentration is very similar to reflection in the sense that extraneous stimuli, mental activities and sensations, impinge themselves on the mind. The difference is the awareness itself. In one case, by reflection, it is not focused, it is weak. You allow yourself to drift very easily. In the second case, in concentration, the awareness is much more focused. You don't drift so easy, even though you're being bombarded by extraneous sensations and mental activity. You don't allow yourself to be uh, diverted so easily. You've got much greater focused awareness. That is the second level of awareness, the second level of concentration. This is, uh, as I said, <coughs> uh, concentration. The third area, the third level of awareness, is called contemplation. It is when you are contemplating. When you are contemplating, you are in the contemplative state. 
Now, what does contemplation mean? What it means is that the awareness itself is focused, it is controlled, directed. In other words, the object that you are aware of, the ideas that you are thinking about, you are focusing on them very intensely, just as before. But the difference now is that there is no more flow or stream of thoughts. In some way, which will analyze how, the technique, an individual is able to stop all flow, the entire flow or stream of thoughts. All sensations, all, uh, all sensations, whether they be sensory or bodily, all mental activities, whether they be thoughts, images, or, or feelings, the self is able to stop all external or extraneous stimuli. In other words, he is able to still the mind. So what you have available, or what's existing in the mind, is just the awareness itself. In other words, there is no stimuli or sensations or mental activities at all. There is no extraneous input. It's what's called an intense intense focused awareness but the reason why it's intense now is because there is no other uh, mental activity or sensations vying for the awareness of self all there is is awareness that is a very difficult state to achieve it takes a lot of practice in other words contemplation is really concentration without sensations or mental activity intruding themselves in the awareness of self that's really what it is. As a result of the fact that there is no more intrusions of any other mental activities or sensations, the awareness itself now becomes much more intense. That itself can make the awareness much more intense about what the individual is thinking about. So the level of the awareness of, of the level of awareness of that individual or self is much greater. It's intense focused awareness because there is no extraneous stimuli uh, impinging on the mind. Now, in other words, we see, as a result of this, that there is a greater portion of the mind which is involved in the awareness of this object. And by the way, if this is the case, then there's also m the creativity that a person has about an object is also much greater. If you are able to still the mind to remove all extraneous thoughts, feelings, images, any sensations of the body or sensory sensations, the awareness itself becomes much more focused. The creativity is much greater because all of a sudden you see the nuances, the subtle shades and variations of that which you are thinking about to a much greater degree. You are able to perceive the relationships of the object in a much greater manner. Creativity is tremendously enhanced if you are in a state of contemplation. If you have reached a contemplative state of awareness, the creativity faculty of the mind is greatly um, enhanced. This is what contemplation really is. So we now see that there are four, three levels of awareness. The first is reflection, where it is a weak awareness of what you are thinking about and it has extraneous stimuli 
impinging itself on the mind. The second area was what's called concentration, where you have the same stimuli also impinging themselves on the mind, but the awareness is much more focused and directed. The third level of awareness or consciousness was contemplation. And that is where there is no more extraneous stimuli impinging itself on the mind. There is no competing uh, uh, phenomena or stimuli which is vying for competition for the awareness of self. All there is is pure awareness. It is focused awareness, but it's intense because there is no interference or intrusion from any other aspect of the mind. There is what's called self and the awareness of self about the object that it is contemplating. That is a very difficult state to achieve, and believe me, it takes, uh, it takes a long time to really achieve that. Now, the last area, or the highest level of awareness or consciousness, is called meditation. That is meditation itself. By the way, before I get into meditation, <coughs> you'll notice <coughs> that the general term for meditation, which I had brought down initially, is the level of concentration. Most people see meditation as what I am now saying is the second level of awareness, which is concentration. In other words, it is controlled, directed thinking, focused thinking, exclusively for a certain specific amount of time. That's concentration. Most people see that as meditation. So when they say, well, he is meditating on something, that's what they mean, that he is concentrating. He is thinking about something in a very intense way, exclusively, for a certain amount of time. But of course, we know that does not exclude all the extraneous thoughts, feelings, and images that a person has. It does not exclude any sensations, whether it be from bodily or... Um, <coughs> Uh, sensory. This is what they mean by uh, meditation. That's the late term for meditation. We, however, see that what they call meditation is really what we call now concentration. And what we are now going to explain, meditation, is a different level of awareness totally. It is the highest level of awareness, and it is very difficult to achieve. But if you can achieve it, reality is qualitatively different for you than it is for somebody else, and I'm going to explain it.